This is the Bigger Pockets Podcast Show 805. I'm based in Indianapolis, Indiana. Right now, what's popular? Burrs, for sure. We have a lot of areas in transition, so that gives a wide margins. You've got these neighborhoods that are kind of old, and you're getting the investors coming in, so you got a lot of spread there, so that allows the burrs to work out pretty well. If you want to do flips, the unique thing about Philadelphia is that it's one of the oldest cities in the country, so there's tons of distressed properties that you could acquire and flip. I'm getting excited just hearing you say this, man. That's so hard to find right now. What's going on, everyone? It's David Green, your host of the Bigger Pockets Real Estate. Podcast here with Rob Abasolo, the co-host. Rob, how are you today? Very good, very good. Um, it is warm in Houston. I don't know if you know this, but it's like I, I'm basically I live in a swimming pool. Yeah, I did know that. Yeah, walking from my back door to my studio, which is only about ten feet. Um, I've, I've, I'm able to shed two pounds of water weight, which is always a great benefit. But then I find myself getting dehydrated in the middle of the Bigger Pockets podcast. So, you know, one of these days I may pass out. Part of the price you pay to be an NPC bikini competitor, man. So just deal with it. <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. Yep. Now, in today's show, we are going to get into two agents who are crushing it in their markets. Peter Stewart and Brandon Ribeiro in Indianapolis and Philadelphia, respectively. They share information about what's going on in their market, what strategies are working, what kind of growth is happening, as well as how they put deals together for their clients. So if you want to learn how to find deals in your market or find a new market to get into, you should love today's episode. Rob, what do you think people should keep an eye out for to help them in their investing journey? So this was actually packed with so much more gold because we're not just going to talk about their market, but we're actually going to talk about all the metrics that sort of define like what makes a healthy market, days on market, all that type of stuff. And the reason I think that it's really important is it really just sort of opens your eyes to what types of metrics you should be considering when picking a new city to invest in. Personally, I think like we're going to talk about all those stats, but it was for me, I was like, man, why don't I ever look at days on market or list to sell ratio? Like that to me was one of the most, I mean, it's a, it's something that I've heard before, but Brandon talks about the price to sell ratio. And for me, I was like, ding, ding, that's where I need to be investing. I need to be looking at that metric first and foremost when analyzing my next investment. So if you can take your eyes off of the next Chipotle development, you might see some things that can help you in your own investing journey. Mm-hmm. Before we bring in Peter and Brandon, today's quick tip. It's important to find a real estate agent who can help you to calculate cash flow and find the best neighborhoods for your strategy instead of just talking about granite countertops and cute backyards. Go to biggerpockets.com slash agent finder to match with an investor-friendly agent now. It's fast, it's free, and it's easy. That's biggerpockets.com slash agent finder, and you can connect with one of the guests from today's show or an agent in your market. Let's get to it. What's better than low money down? No money down. Now through rent to retirement, you can buy a brand new construction turnkey rental property for no money down. Wait, hold on. This can't be right. I need to double check with Zach, rental retirement CEO. Oh, hey, Rob. Zach, how the heck are you selling turnkey rental properties for $0 down? <laughs> it's not that complicated, Rob. Rent to retirement has new construction properties up to $20,000 below retail prices. We also have investor loans with rates as low as 3.99% and down payment options as low as 5% or sometimes even zero money down. You get all the cash flow, appreciation, and equity for as little as zero money down. That's an infinite return. Oh, wait, wait. Let me get on this before we tell it to the whole Bigger Pockets audience. Just head to renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com or text REI to 33777. That's REI to 33777 to learn more about how you can get started investing with no money down today. Get your next new construction property at a steep discount or invest with no money down. Head to renttoretirement.com today. 
You might think you want real estate, but that's not true. What you really want is passive income. With new investors struggling to find deals or get enough money to buy them and veteran landlords tired of the constant tenant phone calls, is there a better alternative? Actually, there is. Short notes from Connect Invest. Connect Invest is an online investing platform that allows you to easily participate in passive real estate investing, and all you need is $500 to start. Short Notes collectively funds a diversified portfolio of commercial and residential real estate projects across acquisition, construction, and development phases. You'll earn a fixed monthly income without the hassle of owning or managing real estate. Head to connectinvest.com BP to create your account. Fund your digital wallet with at least $500. Select from 6, 12, and 24-month short notes with annualized return rates up to 9%. Then sit back and let your monthly returns roll in. Join today by visiting connectinvest.com VP. Connectinvest.com VP. Deciding how to invest your capital can be extremely challenging, especially when the market is constantly changing. That's why it's never been more important to partner with a company that has a great track record. The BAM Capital executive team has successfully navigated through the Great Recession, COVID-19, and the current interest rate environment while delivering maximized returns to their partners. BAM Capital is a trusted multifamily syndicator with over $1.3 billion in transactions, delivering a historical average of over 35% IRR with an average hold period of three and a half years. And BAM Capital has consistently paid preferred return distributions for over 50 consecutive months, has not lost limited partners' capital, and has not called capital past the subscription amount. BAM Capital's disciplined investment strategy is targeting undermanaged institutional quality trophy assets throughout the U.S. heartland for accredited investors who are looking for generational wealth building or monthly income opportunities. Their offerings target cash flow stability, capital preservation, long-term appreciation, and accelerated tax benefits. Join BAM Capital's over 1,200 investors across 44 states and get started today at BAMCapital.com. Again, that's BAMCapital.com. Peter Stewart and Brandon Ribeiro, welcome to the Bigger Pockets podcast. A little background on you two clever, creative, and awesome real estate agents. Peter Stewart started investing in 2011. He's got properties in four states, including Indianapolis, California, Tennessee, and Florida. Occasionally, he flips when the right deal crosses his path, mostly long-term and a few short-term rentals, and he's done 54 deals so far this year. Peter, I'm assuming those are uh, real estate agent deals? Correct. Yeah. Both uh, buyer and seller side. Wow. That's awesome. Awesome. So for those that are unfamiliar, that is a lot. That would put him yeah. into the uh, Ass Batador category. So well done. Appreciate that. And then Brandon Ribeiro has spent four years investing, has a killer haircut as well as beard that makes <laughs> him look very handsome. High quality man here. He's got four properties, which are a mix of short-term rental and long-term rentals. He's done four flips. He is in on pace to do 30 to 40 deals this year. And he recently partnered up to expand the level of service that his company can provide. If you guys want to see what I'm talking about with Brandon, check us out on Bigger Pockets YouTube channel. Brandon, welcome to the show. First off, do you feel like your hair and beard combination are responsible for your success in real estate. Absolutely. Yeah, I just wanted to match you. So I did this before I uh, hopped on the call. <laughs> you took it serious, literally following the mentor, right? Yeah. That's commitment. There's probably some psychology behind that. Like we're more likely to help people that we relate to. And I cannot help but relate to, oh, this is exactly what my face looks like. Yeah, I think it just looks more professional this way. Yeah, that's a great point. Now, I understand that you reached out to me on Instagram uh, several years ago and that I was indirectly responsible for all of your real estate success. Can you share with our audience <laughs> how that works so that they can skip the hard work and the grind and just take the elevator? Yeah, so long story short, um, 
I was just looking for some guidance around the brokerage side of real estate, which, you know, obviously if, if everybody's listened to bigger pockets, you know, that David's a, a broker and, um, has been an agent and a broker for, for years. So, uh, naturally I gravitated towards, uh, David's Instagram account and I reached out to him just for some general advice on, you know, how to seek out brokers, how to really kind of vet them out and figure out what's the best fit. Um, David gave me a couple pieces of advice. So I kind of took it and ran with it. And um, yeah, and that's kind of where I'm at today. Well, congratulations on that. I'm glad to meet you in person and have both of you on the show because as each of you know, and probably Rob too, there is a large need for good real estate agents in our industry. Probably 98% of them are not very good. So when you get a good one, it helps a lot. You know, before we move on, Rob, I just want to ask you, remember when we were buying the Scottsdale house, like mm-hmm. what was your overall kind of perspective on how hard it is to find a good agent and maybe how knowing what agents should do can give you an advantage when you're the buyer working in the deal? Yeah, I think uh, always sourcing an agent is tough if you don't have any contacts in the market, right? And it was really the first time, I think, for both of us getting into that market Luckily, uh, I was able to skip all the <laughs> the in between kind of hard work of finding realtors by taking your advice. You told me to go find the biggest, baddest brokerage and then just ask them who their best agent was. Yeah, and uh, that's what I did. And they actually set me up with somebody who was not the best agent, but he was like, "Hey, my guy over here actually is the best agent for this specific thing. Let me set you up." And I feel like we uh, we we got. We, we, it was like luck meets opportunity, right? Like we knew what we were looking for. We found somebody. He was super versed in that specific niche and uh, helped us get the deal to the finish line. Yeah. And then when we were negotiating with him, there was some coaching that I was doing because I'm an agent. So I was like, Hey, let's stay this. And then you kind of saw that that worked. I was just curious if you had this like, man, it's a big difference between an agent who's good and an agent who's not. And if that might have been different than what you thought before about the house. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's always, it's always an interesting, everyone's different, right? Everyone kind of does things a little bit different. Uh, for me, it's always like if someone is responsive, we'll we'll do the direction and the coaching, and we'll find the deal usually. And that's that's pretty much how it usually shakes out. And speaking of deals, we're going to talk about some deals today. But before we get into them, let's get to know the markets that these two are in. So I'm going to start with you, Peter. What are some of the long term benefits to your market, and what is your market? Great. So uh, great question. So I'm based in Indianapolis, Indiana. Uh, so I would say some of the long-term benefits here. So number one, our market is a very stable market, not volatile at all. So when you see all these market shifts, we don't really feel them. We're one of the last markets to feel them. So you have stability there. We're a very diverse set of large employers. So we're not really reliant on one industry. Indy's a capital city. You know, it's the 16th largest in the country. So we've got those large city amenities, but it still has that kind of small town feel. We've got a strong rental market. In fact, last year, the renter-occupied households uh, accounted for about 44% of all households in the Indy metro area, which is about 1.9 million people. Not the percentage, but the total in, in Indy metro. Um, very low barriers to entry to our market. And also, uh, more importantly, though, there's a lot of growth and development that's happening in Indianapolis. I mean, I'm born and raised here, uh, and pretty much my entire life, the city has been growing and expanding. There's a ton of huge projects in the works, you know, multi-billion dollar projects all over the city. Uh, lots of large companies based here. So again, that adds to that stability and the diversity. Uh, obviously, lots of large companies mean high-paying jobs, meaning uh, renters and you know people to buy as well. So it just provides a lot of opportunity uh, compared to some other markets that may be either declining or stagnant. So Peter, what are you seeing as far as population shifts? Are people moving into your area or leaving? Great question. So in Indianapolis itself, they have been we have been experiencing a slight population decline over the last few years. But that decline is slowing down. Uh, 
in the Indianapolis metro area, which is kind of Indianapolis and the surrounding uh, ring of cities, has been experiencing growth. Not not tremendous growth, but it's been averaging about 1.25% per year. All right. And then what's the economic engine that's driving the area? That's always one of the first questions I ask an agent when I'm looking to move into a new area, do some long-distance real estate investing. I want to know, well, what do people do for work here and what causes wages to rise? One of the big things, uh, one of the big drivers in Indianapolis is the development that's been happening downtown. So w- when I was a kid, the downtown was it was kind of a scary place. You know, you went there if you worked and that was about it. Today, it's a destination. I mean, we've got two major sports teams down there, Colts and the Pacers with Gainsbridge Fieldhouse, Lucas Oil Stadium. We've got a huge convention center that's about to undergo a, I think it's a $3 billion expansion or, so, or no, sorry, uh, $800 million expansion. Lots of big companies are based in Indianapolis, many Fortune 500 companies. I mean, Salesforce occupies our largest tower. Eli Lilly is downtown. We've got Simon Property Group. Cummins, Allison Transmission, Rolls-Royce, Roche Diagnostics, and many, many others. So a lot of big businesses, again, over a diverse set of industries uh, are based in India. And there's a lot of huge projects, you know, moving things along to uh, one example in an area called Fishers, which is one of the cities in the Indianapolis metro area outside of Indianapolis itself. Uh, Andretti, uh, Mike, uh, Mar- uh, Mario, whatever, one of the Andrettis, uh, their global company is building uh, headquarters. There's like $200 million development. We've got uh, our Indy 11 sports team, their excuse me, soccer team. They are our minor league soccer team. They're building a billion-dollar stadium downtown. So those are just a couple of examples, but a ton of things like that are happening all over the city, which, again, you know, driving uh, people coming to the city and lots of high-paying jobs as well as you know, keeping that engine running. And, of course, you know, we've got the Indianapolis 500, too. Can't forget about that. Yeah, it's a big one. Yeah, so might have heard of it. Well, I haven't heard of the other 499. For whatever reason, I only hear about the 500th one. <laughs> like the David Green 23s that came before David Green 24. <laughs> Never hear of them. They're just urban legends. <laughs> so, Peter, why should people consider Indianapolis? So, number one, like I mentioned before, not to sound like a, you know, being a dead horse here, but a very stable market. So, we've got a lot of stability here. It's not a volatile market at all. Again, diverse set of employers. It's a large city. We have a large population. Indianapolis itself is about 900,000 and the metro area is you know, 1.9 million or so. Again, strong rental market. It's very easy to get around town. We're a grid city, so most streets run north, south, east, and west, and we've got a great freeway system. So uh, just it makes the entire city very accessible and easy to get to at any time of day. We've got very low barriers to entry in Indianapolis. I mean, our prices are very affordable compared to a lot of the rest of the country. For a couple hundred thousand dollars, you can buy a nice cash flowing duplex. And uh, if you're on the West Coast, you you know you can't get a garage for two hundred thousand dollars. So um, that has, that that it just opens it up to a lot of people. Um, and because of the diversity, because of the low barriers to entry, it allows for many different strategies from the investment perspective. I mean, you can do flips, you can do burrs, long term buy and holds, short term, medium term rentals, new construction, land development. Pretty much every strategy that exists here in this investing world can be done in Indy. Uh, so it just, it, it, it allows, you know, it, it's not restrictive at all and allows for people, even who may not have a lot of money, um, to get into real estate investing. Uh, so a lot of options from the very beginner uh, newbie to the very advanced uh, investor who's been doing it for many years. Many options all across the board for people. Well, you need garages to park all those cars that are out there for the Indy 500. That is true. All 500 of them. All right. Do you have any data on the current shifts in your market? Like what's going on as far as days on market prices? They moving up, they moving down, are they stable? What's happening? Days on market uh, for Marion County, which is Indianapolis, across all property types, uh, year over year data, uh, days on the market is seven. 
So that's up 40% from a year ago. Uh, so while it is, it is, uh, you know, days on market are extending, it's still, you know, historically speaking, very, very low, you know, well below our average. I mean, a week on the market is incredibly fast. Yeah, it's not yeah, bad. Not bad at all. So it's up 40%. So does that mean that uh, days on market last year was like four days? Four. Yep. Nice. Exactly. Okay. In terms of inventory, definitely seeing that increase. Uh, the, now the number of units sold is down 16% uh, year to date or fr- from a year ago. About 1.4 months of inventory. That is up 45% from a year ago. So do the math there. And yeah, we had about 0.7 months of inventory last year at the kind of the, the peak of uh, the bubble or whatever you want to call it. And our active inventory is up 22% from a year ago as well. Um, also, one more stat, the number of new listings is down 23%. So our inventory is lower, but it's up 13% from the prior month. So we're starting to see a little little bit of a shift up there. Can you go back to that that stat that you said after days on market, you said the inventory went up to over a year. Yeah. Can you clarify oh, yeah. so, that a little bit? Oh, uh, So currently we have 1.4 months of inventory. Okay. So what does that mean? Uh, so basically when you look at you know, the inventory levels, when you see that statistic, what that means is um, how many properties sell in a given market and then... Uh, or excuse me, how many are active divided by how many sell? So as an example, if, if I'm in a neighborhood that sells one property, or excuse me, 12 properties per year, so 12 homes in a neighborhood sell per year, that averages out to one per month. If there is, so we look at what's called the absorption rate. So that market absorbs approximately one home per month. So if one home comes on the market, you divide one by one, essentially you have one month of inventory because at least on paper, uh, it should sell within a month. So what that 1.4 month of inventory statistics says that, again, on paper, it doesn't necessarily translate to the real world, sure. but on paper, if nothing else came on the market in Indianapolis, in 1.4 months, everything would be sold. Oh, okay. So we use the level of inventory to determine what kind of, well, one of the metrics to determine what kind of market you're in. So zero to four months of inventory, the lower uh, amount is a seller's market. So that's what that tells us. Four to six months is typically considered a balanced market. Six and above would be considered a buyer's market. So at 1.4 we're still a pretty strong seller's market. Which is the case in most of the popular markets around the country right now. We typically have the issue of not enough supply, but steady or even rising sometimes demand. So that's the indication that the market is healthy when you see that there's a low amount of inventory. It would take a long time. If it, if it took a long time to sell all the inventory that's out there, that usually leads to prices dropping because it shows that there's more supply than demand. So thanks for breaking that down. And so you would definitely consider it a seller's market currently. What strategies are working in your market today? Is this something you can just go in there and write an offer and get a house? Or do people need to think about this a little deeper? Sure. Great question. I mean, so yeah, you are correct. We are absolutely in the seller's market. I mean, you know, the low days on, on market, we have a 99. 99.7% list to sales price ratio on average. And again, the low inventory. So, so what like that this, means is that if it's listed at 100,000, it's typically an average selling for about 97,000. So it's selling a little bit below asking price, right? 0.3% below, but yeah. Right. Uh, a little bit less. Right? Very, very, yeah. So yeah, strong seller's market. So in regards to the strategies that work here, uh, again, as I mentioned before, you can do everything here for the most part. Um, right now, what's popular, burrs for sure, uh, because again, we have a lot of mark, uh, a lot of areas in transition, uh, especially around our downtown. So that gives a wide margins. You've got these neighborhoods that are kind of old, run down, and you're getting the investors coming in, re- building new or doing mm. the, to the studs remodels. So you have the very high value. So you got a lot of spread there. So that allows the, you know, 
the burrs to work out pretty well. Do you see that creating sort of an environment where overall prices are steadily creeping up because people are bring, coming in and they're getting higher appraisals on the existing inventory after they fix it up? Yeah, a, a little bit. I mean, our median sales price has gone up a 1.6% since last June. So, you know, not a ton, but yes, it is still creeping up a little bit. Um, we have had a little, you know, a few appraisal problems here and there, but for the most part, yeah, because we get a lot of new construction in these areas. And again, those high, uh, high ARV flips. So, and there's a lot of that activity going. So we have enough data to help support these numbers, but every once in a while, yeah, you'll get that person who tries to, you know, outprice everyone else. And sometimes you can run into appraisal problems, but pr pretty rare in, in most of those areas. All right. Now, Peter, I don't mean to put you on the spot before we move into Brandon, but everyone listening to this right now is like sitting at the edge of their seat saying, why hasn't David asked it? I am notorious for throwing Indiana under the bus when it comes to bad markets to invest in. And you're actually giving <laughs> me a chance to clarify my position here. I will say things like the Midwest or Indiana as stereotypically bad markets to go in. Now, here's what I mean when I say that. Very cheap homes, $40,000, $50,000 homes in D-class areas that should never be considered other than the fact they are cheap. So what happens is new investors who don't know anything assume cheap equals low risk. They have high price to rent ratios that appear to make them strong investments. They talk about it will cash flow really strong because on the spreadsheet that doesn't account for vacancies and turns and disasters that account, they look really strong. And then the new investors who don't know any better follow that little mermaid out into the ocean where they are grabbed and drowned and then they can't get out of it. And then they got to sell it to some other sucker who comes along. If you're talking about $200,000 homes right off the bat, we're not in the category of homes that I'm warning people to avoid. So can you give a little bit of a defense for why you think Indianapolis could be a high growth market and then maybe what properties to avoid and what properties you would be leading your clients into if they wanted to invest there? Excellent question. So first, right off the bat, you are absolutely correct. The properties you're talking about are junk. I avoid those. I, I tell everyone in my initial consultation, number one, I don't service D-class areas. I don't service anything under about $100,000. So that just sort of by default, eliminates most of the D-class because there are those $40,000, $60,000 houses out there and they're junk. You're right. They are in rough neighborhoods. The houses themselves, the construction is poor at best. Um, so I don't even sell those. I don't I don't mess with them at all. But yes, you're right. On the surface, they do sound very attractive. And I get those calls every once in a while. Hey, you know, I'd see that $50,000 house that rents for eight hundred, well over the 1% rule. But yeah, they don't see all the negatives on the back end. So I typically, in our initial consult that I have with uh, new clients, I will discuss all that and go over, go over that with them and, and steer them away from that. Um, most of my clients are usually, again, from the investment perspective, of course, it depends on what you're doing, but most land in the hundred dollars to $300,000 range, C-class type areas. Again, that, the C-class is where most of the investor you know, action happens okay. to be. That's Can people expect rent appreciation or price appreciation, or is this something where you really want to go in and get a good deal when you buy because you're probably not going to see equity growth over time? It depends on what area you're in. And I say that because if you're in the suburbs and the more established areas, you're not going to get that rapid appreciation. It's again, that slow and steady uh, kind of you know rising with the market in general, but there is still appreciation here. However, you see the more rapid appreciation in those areas in transition, the ones that are you know all the buzzword, the gentrification, the revitalization, the path of progress. We have a lot of those neighborhoods and they're all surrounding downtown for the most part. Um, so there's tremendous growth in some of those areas. And I'll give you a quick example. On the near west side of town, uh, which historically was very rough, uh, there's a company called Elanco. They announced they're building their global headquarters there. It's about $180 million or so development. 
And that was announced maybe three years ago. They broke ground about a year ago. I've seen prices triple in that neighborhood in the past two years. Homes were $50,000, $60,000 then, and now they're $150,000 starting. Uh, that is an extreme example, but one of many. Because uh, again, 10 years ago in a lot of these neighborhoods, $100,000 is probably the highest sale. When today you go into some of these neighborhoods that have, have uh, really taken off and there's five, six, seven, eight, sometimes even million dollar homes in those mm. in those neighborhoods. So that is quite a bit of appreciation within Indianapolis. Yeah, that's a lot. I'm assuming that some of the surrounding areas outside of Indy, maybe some of those suburbs or like satellite cities, you're not getting the same type of growth. It depends. So if you're familiar with Indianapolis at all, it looks like a big circle. And then you've got a ring of cities around that circle. Once you get beyond that ring of cities, you're basically in the cornfields. And in those are the areas I would avoid. There we go. You're not seeing the growth. Great. Now, until you get to some other markets like with college towns like Bloomington, uh, with Indiana University or Lafayette with Purdue. But those ring of cities have actually been, number one, the population growth is happening there. But there's been tremendous development in those areas, too. As an example, Westfield, which is kind of north-ish, northwest-ish of Indianapolis, is the sixth fastest growing city in the country right now. When I was a kid, it was cornfields and a Walmart. And today it's one of the best places to live. It's amazing, amazing homes, amazing parks, trails, schools, amenities, everything's there. Fishers, same thing. It's on the northeastish side of town. It wasn't even a city, its own city until 2010. And today its population is about to surpass Carmel, which is where I live. I say Indianapolis, but most people don't know where Carmel is, mm-hmm. just north of Indy. Um, tremendous growth, tons of huge companies moving in there. So no, it's it's absolutely happening. On the west side, you've got areas like Avon and Brownsburg. Again, when I was a kid, I didn't even know those cities existed. Today, people are moving out of the city to those areas because of all the growth and development happening. They've got great schools, very safe, clean, et cetera. So yeah, it, as long as you stay you know, kind of close to Indy as a lifeline almost, you're good. But you do need to be careful once you get outside of that into the more rural areas. There you go. That's really good advice right there. So now people know when I say don't buy in Indianapolis or don't buy in Indiana, I should say, or don't buy in the Midwest. It doesn't mean don't buy anywhere there. It means don't be fooled into $45,000, 3% rule property that yes. you're going to wander into and like a Venus flytrap, you can never get out of it. It's sort of like you're, you're Mufasa and you've got your arm around Rob right now. And you're like, do you see that shadowy place over there outside the ring of Indianapolis? You must never go there. Yeah, that avoid. is the realm of the enemy. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And if it's any town that has like one stop sign in it, probably avoid that too. The stop sign ratio. That could be yes, a metric yes. that we could start talking about, right? The stop sign rule. Well, you know, there's a Chick-fil-A rule, like invest within a mile uh-huh. of a Chick-fil-A. And then there's like, yep. yeah, the stop sign rule. I like it. All right. Thank you for that, Peter. Brandon, turning to you, what are the long-term benefits of your market? Yeah. So Philadelphia is uh, uniquely situated, um, you know, just about two hours south of New York, um, just west of New Jersey and uh, north of the DC uh, metro area. Um, and so all three of those markets are incredibly expensive. So a majority of my clients actually come from those markets, specifically New York. Um, so the barriers to entry in those markets are obviously high. Taxes are high, um, not as landlord friendly. Um, so naturally, the next stop is going to be Philadelphia. So that's kind of where most of my clients end up coming from. All right. And then Talking population shifts, are people moving into that area? Are they moving out? What's going on with the growth? Yeah, so uh, a lot of our developer clients are seeing some great success in occupying their uh, multifamily development projects. Um, We have a few several hundred uh, unit developments currently in progress. Um, A lot of them completely leased out in the pre-leasing stage. Um, So I'm seeing 
a pretty steady population growth on our end um, in the Philadelphia market. There's some push towards the suburbs um, north of Philadelphia as well um, and west. And uh, the market demand in those markets is two times what it was uh, just a few years ago. Um, so a lot of people are pushing to be in the better school districts, uh, the main lines of market uh, just outside of Philly, probably 20 minute drive into the city that has a very strong demand for housing. Um, I have a couple of higher end uh, flip clients that love that area. You know, they could put their higher end finishes and they'll always see the return on it. Um, so the demand for the housing has been steady. Um, during COVID, obviously there was a mass exodus. Everybody wanted to get out of the cities. Um, so what I'm seeing in what I read, the research, the blogs and all that stuff um, is actually holding true. So what they're saying is that the COVID market, you saw you know, a surge in Airbnbs, you saw a surge in the rural markets. Um, and pre-COVID, those markets are seeing taking a hit. So Philadelphia is like the opposite. So everybody wanted to leave the city. And now that COVID's over, everybody's coming back. So it's, it's very strong rental demand, um, very strong housing demand too. Isn't that funny? That's the same thing that we saw in some of the big cities in California. Yeah. I guess before, I know I'm going a bit of a tangent here. It's just a pattern I've noticed in real estate that people can take advantage of if they pay attention to this. Before COVID, all of the development was happening in big cities in downtown areas, huge cranes in Seattle, Austin, San Francisco. You couldn't avoid seeing tons of these properties being built in the inside of the city near all of the amenities. Like millennials didn't want to have cars. They didn't want to have to cook. And there was no stoves in properties because they just ate out every day. And they were all tech companies were moving into these areas and paying high rents because that's where people wanted to live. And everybody, and that like it led to the increase in Uber. Like you kind of saw all of the technology centered around this and then COVID came and all the restaurants shut down and all the fun things to do shut down and you were cooped up in your 400 square foot condo with two other people. Yeah. And it's no longer fun to live there because you're just sleeping on a couch, but you're outside of your house. You're stuck in the house. So we saw a flood of people going out to the suburbs. Like you just said, I want a bigger house. I want more space. It went from very tough to sell stuff in San Francisco to the East Bay where the bigger houses were. Oh man, it was like impossible to put anyone in contract there. Right. Cause there was such a movement. And then after things changed, when COVID opened up, San Francisco itself hasn't bounced back because of what you guys see in the news, but your typical big city that's run a little better. They've got all the people getting sucked right back in there. And if you can notice these uh, patterns, you can buy in the area where nobody else was. That's kind of how I got my two Kihei condos in Maui. I got really good prices because I bought them when COVID hit and no one was traveling to Maui. Right. So these short-term rental operators were bleeding for months because they had zero revenue and they couldn't sell. And I went there and bought them when nobody else was. And then when COVID turned around and they would let people come in with a test, they gained like $400,000 in equity in like six months. Yeah. It was crazy how fast that came. So studying these patterns can help you buy in the emerging market. I appreciate you sharing that, Brandon. It sounds like you kind of understand what's going on in your market. Why should people consider Philly? So kind of alluding to what I just talked about, it's actually pretty similar to the uh, to Peter's market, which is kind of interesting, but there's a little bit of differences. So Philadelphia is a very block-by-block city. Um, I think it's super critical to, if you want to invest in Philly and you're not familiar with the Philadelphia market, um, I think it's very critical to find somebody that thoroughly understands the market um, in the most in-depth way possible. So it's very easy to get attracted to a property because of its purchase price or its sales price. Um, but that could be in a neighborhood that you probably don't want to be in for many reasons, safety, uh, you know, one of them. 
So there's lots of strategies that can be applied to the Philadelphia market. The one that I'm seeing work best right now, uh, just because of it's the most prevalent one is house hacking. Um, but Philadelphia, you can apply all the different strategies depending on where you go. So if you want to do flips, the unique thing about Philadelphia is that it's one of the oldest cities in the country. So there's tons of distressed properties, tons of dilapidated properties that you can obviously, you know, acquire oh boy. and flip. I'm um, excited just hearing you say this, man. Yeah. It's so hard to find right now. Rob, would you agree? It's so hard to find a market that still has properties that can be fixed up and value added to them. 100%, especially when like there's a lot of them. You know, it feels like I'm always searching for that here in Houston, and it's a giant city. It's, I think, probably pretty close to the size of Philadelphia. But yeah, man, I feel like that inventory gets slimmer and slimmer. So you really have to go like, hunting these days i just realized how rare it is to hear it when you said that i'm like what this yeah. used to be like like i'm a dog like its ears perk up or like you smell Bar? food yeah i exactly. did hear you give the scooby sound just a second ago because i frankly i ruined my own market for myself when i started doing the podcast and i started saying i invest in jacksonville it was like one month after that thing aired that I started to notice like, damn, there's no inventory. What happened here? And then three months later, I couldn't get a contractor to call me back. Real estate investors sort of act like locusts that just swarm into a market and eat up all the inventory. And then they move on to the next one. We've seen this in Atlanta. We saw this in Memphis. We saw it in Jacksonville. We saw it in Birmingham, Alabama, Austin, Texas before that. There's clearly like this is the hot thing and everyone goes there and then it gets super hard to find anything and then they move on to the next. So if you're listening to this, it sounds like Philly still has some opportunities to go in there. And would you say that there's some possibility to burr? Absolutely. Yeah. So Philly's rapidly gentrifying. So slowly the, you know, more distressed neighborhoods are turning over. Um, and as that happens, there's uh, a lot of our developer clients uh, have several opportunities that are currently in progress in these neighborhoods specifically. Um, and some of these neighborhoods that you would 10 years ago never think that anybody would ever want to own a property in, now there's you know $700,000 row homes in. Um, so that's really helping the people looking to do the burst strategy because it's giving you some comps to support what you're about to do. Um, so yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great strategy as well. What about any data on current shifts in your market? Are, are days on market going up? Are they going down? How have things been changing? Yeah. So I was actually pretty impressed by Peter's stats. Um, great job on that. But yeah, what impressed me the most was your days on market. Cause our average is around 40, wow. uh, 40 Whoa. days on market. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. So the interest rates are really hurting a lot of buyers. Um, and it's one of the reasons why, I mean, you could look at it in a negative way. Uh, to me, I see it as an opportunity. Um, you know, if everybody's kind of taking a step back, this is a perfect time for you to jump in, um, and scoop up an, uh, you know, a property under what will be the new market value, uh, once the rates drop. So yeah, days on market are definitely high. Um, sales price, uh, statistically it's down 5.9% since last year. I'm seeing property sell, uh, at roughly 80 to 85% of ask price. Um, wow. Yeah. It was a, for Peter, for you, was, did you say 98%? 99.7% less the sales oh, price 99.7. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Yeah. Okay. When I heard that, my ears kind of, I was like, wow, that'd be great if I could get a listing to sell for 99% of, of list price. But yeah, I mean, I think that the market's in an interesting spot right now, uh, which leaves kind of a void for opportunity for new investors. Um, you know, if you can have the mindset, that you're buying something right now for the price, not necessarily for the cash flow. The cash flow will come in six, 12 months when you refi. Um, so 
yeah, that's it, it's definitely an interesting market right now overall. Would you consider it a seller's market because of that high days on market? Let me let me phrase it another way. Oftentimes we will look at the market as a whole. We will say the DOMs is forty days, so that's a tough market. But there's a large degree of crap that nobody wants that's sitting there that skews it. Right. And so people go in thinking, oh, I'm going to ride it way below asking and I'm going to crush it because every seller's desperate. But there's a certain type of inventory that everybody wants and it still sells really quick. Do you see sort of that bell curve where you got a bunch of junk and a bunch of good stuff? Yeah. Or is it all just sort of too much of everything and so you can get great under asking price deals? No, I, I think it's a, a pretty strong bell curve. Um, So... One of the things kind of skewing the curve is new construction. So a lot of new construction started when the rates weren't the way they are today. Um, so the projections of the developers that where they had to price the property wasn't really adequate to today's market, in my opinion. And that's the reason why we're going in there and we're, um, I just had one that we got 200,000 under ask on a new construction triplex. Um, so like those are the kinds of wins that I'm seeing in our market because of the situation of it. Um, so yeah, I mean, if you have your stereotypical colonial house in a picture perfect neighborhood in a great school district, that's going, that's gone within three days. So the good stuff is flying. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the really, really good stuff. Got it. Okay. Yeah. And you got to know that because you go into the market thinking, oh man, it's, and then you see houses listed at 400,000, you tell your agent, write it for 280. And then you say, no, don't do that. And they go, oh, you just want a higher commission. You're like, no, it's, this isn't one of those type of houses, right? Yeah. 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 So let me ask you this, Brandon. Because you're saying that the, I guess the list price to selling ratio or whatever is a 85%. So does that typically mean, and I guess this is probably going to be relatively situational, but does that mean that whenever people are out there making offers, are a lot of people coming in pretty quickly with like less than asking offers because of the market the way it is? Or are people even aware that the market is, you know, that like, would most people be privy to that? That's 85% of the actual listing price. Yeah. So I don't think that a lot of the sellers are, uh, which is why they still are pricing the things, you know, properties the way they are. Um, you know, a lot of people still haven't gotten with the times. Um, and I think that's, that's part of the problem. So the interest rates today aren't obviously what they were a year ago. So I think the biggest issue that we're having right now is just getting cash flow in general. You know, every deal that we send over, to to look at to get underwritten by you know some of our lenders they look at it and they're like yeah this I can't do this like it doesn't work is that because they're using DSCR ratios to approve the loans so a large majority of what I do is commercial um, so they'll okay. they'll kind of look at that and immediately they'll just kick it back and say I can't lend on this which does means yes they are using DSCR exactly ratios. and yeah. what what is that David just for everyone at home it's for debt service coverage ratio. So that's a good question. Typically, when you're getting approved to buy residential real estate, the lender says, can you, Brandon, can you, Peter, can you, Rob, afford to make this payment? So they use your debt to income ratio. How much you make, how much debt do you have, how much is left over? That means you can afford a payment of this much. So we are what's being underwritten. But with the DSCR ratio, they are looking at, can this property pay back the money that I'm going to lend you to go buy it? So they typically want to see that it will cash flow about 20% more than your expenses, which means it has a DSCR ratio of 1.2. If you hear a ratio of 1.1, that means it's going to provide 10% more uh, rent than what it would cost to own it. And if it's a DSCR ratio of one, that means it's breaking even. Does that make sense? Yeah. Okay. So you're in the commercial space. In order for someone to get financing to buy it, it has to 
for lack of a better phrase, cash flow, right? right? It has to hit these DSCR ratios. And when rates go up like they have, but the sellers are like, I don't want to sell it for less than somebody else did, you find yourself in a bit of a stalemate. Is that what you're seeing out there? Yeah. And I think part of the reason is, you know, there's obviously talks of interest rates dropping. So the sellers realize that. And if the seller's not with their backs to a corner and they absolutely have to get rid of the property for whatever reason, they're just going to, what I'm seeing some of our clients do is take the, withdraw the listing and they're going to hold it off until they're projecting that Q4 of this year, things are going to kind of improve from a lending standpoint. So that's exactly what they're doing. They're holding off until the market does allow them to get the number they need. Yeah. And this is what we're talking about on today's podcast. But as a side note, I'll ask you, if you look at this stalemate that we're in, I look at it like it's siege warfare because I can't help but make everything some form of war or battle reference, right? (laughs) You've got the people inside the city that are like, we're not giving in. We're not going to let you into our city to take us over. And you've got the conquering people. These are like the buyers saying, break down that door. I want to buy your property. Here's my offer. And and the people inside the city are the sellers. No, we're not going to take it. You need to come up. And they're in a standoff. Well, in siege warfare, it's all about attrition. Are you going to run out of food on the inside before we run out of food on the outside? Because we can go get more food. We can wait. And in the commercial space, the buyers are in the stronger position. They're sitting outside of the city, of the city, the city walls saying, Hey, you're going to run out of your loan. You, you have a balloon payment that's going to come due at a certain point. And if you have to sell because of that, we're going to be waiting to buy. Is that a thing that you think in the future is going to present some opportunities in Philly? Well, it's happening right now. I mean, so like the one example I brought up of the new construction, 200K under ask, um, the, the reason for that is because they bought it and they developed it obviously with a construction loan, which is higher interest and shorter term. Well, that term's getting to the end. So they didn't really have a choice. So either you refi and you keep it, or you just make a sacrifice and sell the property. Um, you know, a lot of developers, they don't want to hold on to the, their end product. That's not their goal. So they're going to have to refi at this current interest rate or just make a compromise and sell it for a number that makes sense in the market we're in today. We're always looking for ways to improve, searching for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for better is by matching with quality candidates. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Just go to Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Indeed.com slash BiggerPockets. Need to hire? You need Indeed. You've heard us talk about it before. High interest rates are crushing real estate investors, leaving even some of the best investors in need of funding now. But with today's liquidity crisis, who can fill the demand? With Fundrise, America's largest direct-to-investor alternative asset manager, you have the opportunity to. Fundrise's new opportunistic private credit strategy was designed specifically for this new market environment. 
Fundrise supplies high-demand bridge financing on high-quality assets with creditworthy borrowers. Top real estate investors get the funding they need while you walk away getting paid a healthy interest rate. To date, Fundrise has completed more than $500 million worth of private credit deals with an average net interest of 10.8%, and they've already amassed a pipeline worth more than $300 million. Don't sit on the sidelines. You can take advantage of this unique window of opportunity while it lasts with Fundrise's new private credit strategy. Ready to start? Go to Fundrise.com pockets to learn more. That's F-U-N-D-R-I-S-E dot com slash pockets. This is a paid endorsement for Fundrise. Past performance is not indicative of future results. All investments can lead to loss. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do not call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com slash BP. All right, there we go. It is time to get into the specific deals in your markets. Thank you both for providing such a solid assessment and analysis of both Indianapolis and Philly. I saw Rob perk up when you started talking about all of the opportunities that are out there, Brandon. Uh, if I was you, I would probably get his email and start sending him a couple deals because <laughs> when he does that, it means like, Ooh. don't do this to me. I have shiny object syndrome. <laughs> <laughs> the real SOS, right? Yeah. All right. So let's start with you, Peter. We'll get Brandon's uh, vocal cords a chance to rest because I just grilled him right there. All right, Peter, tell me about the name of your deal. All right. So we're calling this one the Dumpy Duplex. Um, <laughs> so this one's based in Indianapolis, located in the Mableton Fall Creek area. And this deal was in the last six months that just happened. Uh, so Mableton Fall Creek's a nice area on the north side, uh, experiencing a lot of revitalization. Uh, historically a C-class area, but it's it's been turning over and I'd, I'd classify more in that B-class now. Um, so I represented the client. Happen to meet them through the Bigger Pockets Agent Finder. So great tool to find an agent if you don't have one in any local market here. Uh, so she was from out of state, never been in Indy, didn't know anything about the area. I uh, was looking for a burr or potential flip. This one happened to be a burr. Uh, so it was a duplex. Purchased it with hard money, included money for renovation, and refied into a 30-year fix once the work was done. So the numbers on this thing, uh, my client bought it for $135,000. It was listed at one I'll tell you that uh, how we got there in just a moment. Uh, it was 330K ARV with 115000 in renovation. Uh, they did have it appraised on the refi for the 330, just as we had hoped. And after finalizing that refinance, uh, she left about $9,000 in the deal. Not bad. Yeah, not bad. Wait till you have the numbers out. So it rents for $1,600 a side. So you got 3200 gross. Tenants paying all utilities. Our total monthly payment's about 1900 So you know, after you take the 10% off for your property management company, it's netting about a thousand dollars a month on this thing. So rock and roll. It's about 130, 130% cash on cash annually. Uh, yeah. Not bad, right? Cool. Uh, yeah. one really cool thing about this one is that, uh, my client rented it to a business that helps battered women and children. 
Uh, so they signed a two-year lease with them and they get guaranteed checks from the state. Uh, so it makes the investment really stable with you know very minimal turnover. Okay. So walk us through some of the mechanics of this really fast. So you said that she she bought the house for a hundred. Hundred thirty five. Hundred and thirty five. And then what was the one seventy five number? That was the list price. So we were able to get it down forty thousand. Oh, oh, I see. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Great. Great. And then how much work was put into that? One hundred and fifteen thousand. One hundred and fifteen thousand. So total there, and that that was also all the carrying costs and everything for the hard money. No, no. There's a you know it happened pretty quickly. So I didn't get. I'm, my guess is about ten thousand in carrying costs because it did take a couple months to do the renovation. Got it. Got it. Okay. Cool. cool. Um, so yeah. So she's into it roughly for you know, two seventy or so. Two seventy, and then she was able to basically go get a high appraisal from the bank because it it checked all the boxes. Didn't appraise completely, but not completely to the level she needed to get all of her money back. But pretty close to the point where she got all of it back except for nine thousand bucks, which isn't lost money. It's just equity that's in the house now. Exactly. Yeah, it was it was about as close to like a perfect burr as you can get these days. I mean, obviously, I know when David, you wrote your awesome book about this back in I believe twenty seventeen. Yeah, the numbers worked out a little differently. I think it was a lot easier to get that perfect burr where you get the infinite return essentially and have no money left or even get some money back. I'm uh, a little tougher to to hit those uh, those numbers these days, but yeah, this was uh, very very close to that. The perfect, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Dang it, I was waiting for him to stop so I could say that, but yeah, I did kind of step on her ups toes. But I am glad that came up because a lot of people think don't do a burr unless you can get all of your money out of it. Yeah, that's silly, it's right? Silly. Yeah, stop comparing yourself to perfection, girl. You're wonderful. You don't have to look like the girl in the magazines, <laughs> right? You just gotta look better than me. And it's going to be a win. Like the burr, as long as you leave less money in it than the whole rehab and the 25% down, you won. Be happy Mm -hmm. with that. So thank you for bringing this up. Well, and one quick note on that. Yeah. The way I always think about that is, you know, especially with, I mean, really anything, but the way I think about it is like, if I were going to go and buy a $330,000 house, I would need to put down 20% probably, which would be 66,000 bucks. That's like way more than the 9,000 bucks, right? So sweat equity equals equity. Yes, that's the idea. Yes. Plus the rehab you'd have to spend after you bought it to fix it up. And that's cash out of pocket typically too. She she did purchase with a hard money loan and they included the money for innovation. So I, I forget the exact total of what she spent out of pocket, You know, probably in that yeah 30% range or so. But you're right. So this one's a duplex. So actually you go buy this just on market for 330, you're doing 25% down. So yeah, you're looking more in the $75,000 range Oh, once it's all said and done. Pretty good. Okay. And how did you demonstrate value to your client in this deal? Excellent question. So a couple of things. So number one, this client had never been in Indianapolis, never stepped foot in here, didn't know anything about it. So as with all my remote clients, you know, I was their eyes and ears, their boots on the ground. I helped them find property managers, lender contacts. She'd actually come with, to me with a property man, or excuse me, with a contractor already in place. Found on the BP forum, by the way, great resource there. Um, and so, you know, the local area information, all that stuff I helped provide. So in our initial conversation, I got to know her, got to know what her strategy was, what she was looking for, and then, you know, honed in on specific neighborhoods where I thought those strategies could work. Again, specifically, she was looking for a burst. We want to look in transitionary neighborhoods where you've got a lot of dilapidated homes, but high ARV properties. So you get that big spread because uh, a lot of these properties are 100 plus years old and oftentimes need six figures of renovation to get them uh, rent ready. So you need that widespread for the numbers to work. Um, so of course you're allowed to me, you know, to be your eyes and ears the whole time. We did the, you know, I do an interior and exterior video walkthrough during the inspection so she can see it kind of firsthand up close, you know, more than what the picture you'll see in the pictures. 
help coordinate access for the inspection, get our contractor in to get the estimates, help provide comps to determine ARV on mm. both the sale, the rent, et cetera, all the numbers. But more importantly, on this specific one, I used knowledge I had about the property and the seller to really negotiate a good price for her. So this was listed at 175, as I mentioned. Uh, so we got it for 10K under asking originally. So we're under contract at 165. However, in my talks with the seller's agent, I discovered that the seller bought this pro or got the acquired the property at like a tax auction or something like that. And what they didn't know is that there's actually two properties on the parcel. So they thought they were just buying one. So they found out they had a second property. They went to the city, parceled it off and decided to sell it. And looked, I looked at the tax records, saw that they paid a hundred for that parcel. So anything over, you know, it's basically a bonus property that was just going to be profit for them. So I figured they may not care too much about that final sales price. Cause again, it is all profit. Uh, so I used the, you know, the knowledge I had about the property. And then of course we did the inspection, got a contractor bid and it was in really rough shape. So we used that as leverage too. Uh, to, so we used all those things to really hammer the seller on the price and get that down. So, uh, you know, again, we were under contract for 165 and we negotiated an additional $30,000 discount after the inspection uh, to get it down to 135 and really make the numbers work for the client. Man. Yeah. That's awesome. David, you've, you've done a, I think you've done a burr before. Um, how common is it to get like a full on contracting bid before you close on the property? Because the, the thing that I always find is like sometimes when a deal is there, you like you need to make the offer move quickly, but a contractor bid could take like a week or two or three, depending on how fast that contractor is. So like, are you always basing the, the home sale on that contingency that you can get a contractor bid? Yeah. It, I never got it before I put it in contract, which I think is a mistake people make. They wait to put it in contract till they have every single piece of Intel and then someone else buys it. I did have it before I closed every time. So the way I set it up, which is in the Burr book, apparently it just puts Rob to sleep when he reads it at night. So he doesn't remember <laughs> this part. But it's because it's, it's therapeutic. That's why. Yeah, there you go. Thank you, man. It's actually like I got frustrated by constantly having my home inspector go to the house, the property manager go to the house, then the contractor go to the house, and then they all have to communicate with each other. And of course, they go, the shortest answer is just to bug me with it. And now I've got three different people that I'm trying to shoot stuff to. So I would schedule my agent to get there with my property manager and the home inspector and the contractor. And they all at the same time go through the house. And the home inspector talks to the contractor and says, hey, this electrical outlet's not working. This cabinet hinge is breaking. This light switch isn't flipping on. Whatever the thing is. And now the contractor knows to throw that in his bid because he's already going to be there, right? It's a lot of money if you want someone to go to your house j just to fix an electrical outlet because they're charging you for the time to go. But if they're already there doing everything, they usually just charge you for the materials and like 25 bucks or something to have one of their guys switch it out. Uh, so I would get the contractor bid at the same time that the home inspection was done. And I'd have the major stuff from the inspection put into the contractor bid. So it was all there. And then I would have that those total numbers before I closed. And ideally, before my inspection contingency was up, then I would go back and renegotiate or say, nope, it works and I can close on the deal. Nice. Wow. That is my Blinkist right there. That's like the, the Blinkist version <laughs> yeah. of the Burr. That's a great way to put it. We call it we call it Greenkist. <laughs> Green, yeah. Green kiss. That's right. We do call it that. Well, that's an amazing deal, Peter. That's awesome. It's, I mean, it's, it sounds like you provided a ton of things that some realtors do, but not necessarily always well, but like getting in there in the comps and doing the ARVs and the fact that you've done flips before probably helps a lot because you actually can provide a little bit of guardrails on what to do and what not to do. So pretty amazing deal. 
130% cash on cash. When did this happen? Like, when did this deal take place? She purchased it uh, in March and just got the refi completed two, oh, three weeks okay. ago. So this is so this just happened. Very recent. Okay. Yeah. So look, I think 130% cash on cash return, not really where you should set your sights, not <laughs> always realistic. However, it is encouraging to know that like it is super possible to have like a good deal even in today's market. That's that's kind of like the moral of the story. Yep. Yeah. Absolutely. And it shows you, you know, there are things certain agents can do, certain ways of getting information that you can help leverage. Again, had I not had that conversation with the seller's agent, really dug in and asked some probing questions and done my did my research on the back end, looking at the tax records, things like that to really see the history of that property. Without that additional knowledge that I gained, I probably wouldn't have the leverage to negotiate that price down so much. And a lot of agents won't take the time to do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, amazing. Well, thanks for sharing. Let's move on to uh, deal number two. Throw it over to you, Brandon. Uh, do you have a name for the deal? So this is a seven street deal. Um, this property is in Philadelphia. Um, it was originally listed for 1.2. Uh, my client immediately was interested in it because of the location. Um, this was a property that recently got renovated. Um, so during the due diligence and inspections, the interest rates ended up going up. Um, they went up to a point where the deal no longer made sense at that price. Um, so because we were one of the first people that went to see the property and offered on it, um, we got it under contract. So because of that, the seller wasn't willing to compromise on price uh, because they figured they could just take it back to market and just test the waters and see if they could do some do it with somebody else, maybe even a cash buyer. And sorry, what, what was the price on that one more time? So it was $1.2 million. $1.2 million. Okay, cool. This was a five-unit building. Um, so naturally I wanted to keep the deal alive. It was a great deal for my client at the time, but I knew that there was still a way that I could make this work. So I went back to the seller, um, and just really tried to see if I could get the price down, but he wouldn't budge because of the nature of the deal. Um, so I proposed seller financing. Um, so seller financing would essentially allow the seller to still get the number that he was looking to get. But at the same time, I could leverage a lower interest rate to get my client the the number that he needed in order to make the deal work. So basically all said and done, um, I got him a 3% interest rate in a market where seven and a half was the going rate. Nice. Um, so naturally he was, he, I think he almost doubled his cash flow on the property. Significant. Yeah, absolutely. So strategically, uh, I looked at some permits and plans that were pulled uh, on the city's website. Um, there's a couple large multifamily projects that um, were slated to break ground. This was earlier this year. So this slated to probably right around now, they're breaking ground. So we structured the term, a five-year seller finance term. Um, and actually he's doing interest-only payments. So his his payments are like peanuts compared to- you know, So it's not, it's not amortized over any specific time or anything like no, that? No, interest-only for five years and then a balloon after that. Cool. So the cool thing is that by the time his balloon payments due, there's- several hundred units of new construction uh, that will be done. So it's going to essentially boost his in value of the property up. So when he refis, he might even be able to cash out some. Yeah. Walk away with some cash. Well, let me ask you this. I guess I'm a little confused about, okay, so he's buying this property. There's stuff being built. He takes over, he, he buys at seller finance. Is he then also financing the 
the completion of the construction himself or how does that part no, work? No, so I probably misphrased a little bit. So there's several hundred units surrounding the property that he bought that are being built. Oh, yeah. oh, oh, like shopping centers or just other. Okay, got it, got it. So yeah, it's a really growing. It's, you know, like a lot of the gentrifying neighborhoods in Philly, uh, you know, it's rapidly growing. So I think he's going to see some nice appreciation out of it too. Cool, cool. And let me ask you this. This is always something that probably you'll hear often on the seller finance side, but you as a realtor in this deal, how did you get paid in the seller financing situation if it's all if it's really a more seller finance like hey, the buyer goes to the seller and they work out their terms? Yeah, so the seller paid exactly the commission that he promised on the listing. Um so it didn't change anything on that aspect. Nothing came out of my buyer's pocket. Um so it, nothing changed on the commission side of things. Um, so I have a couple really good attorney connections that, um, are really good with creative financing and seller financing. So brought them into the deal to kind of draft up the note and the quote unquote mortgage. Um, and then just, it was just a a closing, just like every other. So nothing else changed on that aspect. Great. And then a buyer comes to the table with some amount of cash to close. And that's sort of where the commission is paid out of. Correct. Yeah. So we still came to the table with the same exact down payment that he was going to put on his conventional mortgage. Um, so that's kind of the, those are the proceeds that were used to distribute commissions. Cool, cool, cool. And I mean, I think it's pretty clear how you demonstrated value. It sounds like you made a, a dying deal. You brought it back to life. Uh, was there any other things that you worked, any other angles that you, that you kind of brought to your client to make this like a slam dunk? Yeah. So this specific client was actually an out-of-state investor. Uh, he's based out of New Jersey. Um, not very familiar with the specific neighborhoods and the, you know, specificities of the, of the market where this property was. Um, so really I was able to connect him with some of my resources in terms of lending. Well, obviously that didn't work out. Um, so then I quick pivoted to some attorney connections, got him connected with a property manager, some local contractors. Um, so yeah, I mean, I would say that the, to me, the most important thing that a broker can do is really just provide connections to their clients. Um, so structuring the, the kind of restructuring the deal mid-transaction, um, I think really helped him still keep the deal alive and ultimately make his first acquisition in the city of Philly. Nice. And you said it cash flowed before, um, or it was going to cash flow even at the 7% or whatever that initial interest rate was. But then by bringing the interest rate down to 3%, it doubled the cash flow. Is that how it all ended up panning out? Like, did they walk into like a pretty, pretty awesome deal from a, from an income standpoint? Yeah. So he's, he's doing really well. I touched base with him about a week ago on the property. He's doing very well with it. Um, occupancy is not an issue. Um, so yeah, I mean, he ended up, I, I honestly don't have the specific numbers, but he's doing, double the numbers that he was projecting with the previous mortgage with through a conventional note. Wow, that's good. So again, uh, there is always a creative solution if you can get the seller on board, which sounds like they were, and uh, ended up creating a pretty great, great deal out of it. So really nice. All right. Well, thank you to agents very much for sharing both about your markets and your deals. It's encouraging to know that people are still able to make deals happen if they have the right information. So we thank you for sharing it on our platform. Peter, if people want to reach out to you, where can they do so? Thanks, David. Uh, so number one, the Bigger Pockets Agent Finder is the best resource there. You can find me directly on bp.com. If you want to go for my socials, uh, Instagram slash Indie Home Seller or Facebook at Peter Stewart Realty. And that is Stewart spelled S-T-E-W-A-R-T. And how about you, Brandon? Um, so you could check out my team's website. It's agentphl.com. Um, or you could check out our Instagram. It's just agentphl. 
Thank you. Rob, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me on the IG or the YT uh, over at Rob Built, R-O-B-U-I-L-T. Look at this. Alphabet soup coming from Abasolo here. <laughs> Nicely done. You can find me on the Agent Fighter as well if you're looking for an agent in California, or you can reach out to me directly. My Instagram and all my socials are davidgreen24, as well as my YouTube channel, or you can go to davidgreen24.com and see all the stuff I got going on. Thank you, gentlemen. This has been a fantastic episode. I would highly encourage anybody who's looking to buy in the Philly or indie markets to reach out to both of these two gems of human beings. We're going to let you guys get out of here. This is David Green for Rob Alphabet Soup Abasolo signing off. And that was our show. Head over to biggerpockets.com slash agent finder to match with investor friendly agents now. It's fast, it's free, and it's easy. That's biggerpockets.com slash agent finder. You can even find me on there. There's a reason small multifamily investing is so popular in the Bigger Pockets community. With just a 3.5% down payment, you can own up to four different units. Think about it. If you house hack and live in one of the units, you still have three different groups of tenants helping you pay down your mortgage every month, four kitchens and bathrooms you could renovate to increase your property value, four different Airbnbs, medium-term rentals, or other rental strategies that you can try in one property, all in just one transaction. Of course, the question is, where do you find a small multifamily property that you can actually afford? Which market and which deals are best for you? Once you close, how do you manage it, optimize it, keep scaling, and living your life without being tied down to four leaky toilets or four fussy tenants? All great questions, my friends. All to be answered in the upcoming small multifamily bootcamp with Chris Lopez and Leica Devatha. So if you're serious about growing your portfolio with this highly efficient strategy, head to biggerpockets.com slash four, F-O-U-R. Today, and join us in the small multifamily bootcamp. See you there. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all hosts and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. BiggerPockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.